This is Finding Center, a daily half hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is Serving with Love. J. Michael Hunter, chair of the BYU Department of Religion and Family History at the Harold B. Lee Library, when this devotional was given, will give his talk entitled Small Things. As I was pondering what to say here today, the phrase, make a difference in the world, kept coming to mind. We hear the phrase in this season of graduation proceedings and commencement addresses. It's commonly used at a university. When I searched the phrase on the BYU website, I came up with over 5,000 results. It's a phrase that is often expressed in the context of future opportunities and actions, frequently suggesting something extraordinary. In this context, when students hear that they are preparing to make a difference in the world, they might assume that the difference they are to make somehow lies dormant until after graduation, so that when they do go out into the world, they are prepared to make a big impact. Today, I would like to look at it in a different way. I would like to discuss making a difference in the world in the context of the here and now and the small and simple. Wanting to make a difference in the world, Mother Teresa founded the Missionaries of Charity in 1950. The mission of her small organization was to help the poorest of the poor in the slums of Calcutta, India, through education and meeting the needs of the destitute and starving. She wanted to bring comfort to the sick and dying who often felt unloved, uncared for, and unwanted. Some 20 years later, the BBC sent an award-winning journalist to interview Mother Teresa about her work. The journalist reported that Calcutta was a scene of suffering and despair, the streets crowded with naked, hungry, homeless people whose needs stretched far beyond what the missionaries of charity could provide. The journalist suggested that a government agency would be better equipped than Mother Teresa to handle the destitute in the slums of Calcutta. The journalist stated, Statistically speaking, what she achieves is little or even negligible. End quote. He thought, as he later revealed, that the difference she was making was so insignificant that it was hardly worth the bother. Responding to the criticism directed at the insignificant scale of her work by comparison with the need, Mother Teresa noted that, quote, Welfare is for a purpose, an admirable and a necessary one, whereas Christian love is for a person. She told the journalist that the one was about numbers, the other about Christ. She explained that what the poor needed, as much as food and clothing, was to be wanted and loved. Her simple purpose was in providing that love. She served the one within her reach, doing the best she could with what she had. She said at another time, What we do is nothing but a drop in the ocean, but if we didn't do it, the ocean would be one drop less. Through her humble service, Mother Teresa made a difference in the world, drop by drop. After the interview, the journalist concluded, quote, Christianity is not a statistical view of life, that there should be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over all the host of the just, is an anti-statistical proposition, End quote. Jesus Christ taught us to love and serve the one within our reach. Sitting by a well in Samaria, Jesus spoke with a woman from the local village. He spent time with her. He listened. He answered questions. He showed respect. The teachings and miracles of Jesus attracted crowds.
people in need, like the woman who reached out and touched his clothes to be healed, pressed about him, seeking his individual attention. Some tried to bring little children to him, wanting him to put his hands on them and bless them. When some of his disciples tried to send the children away, Jesus stopped them and asked that the children be brought to him. He took time out of his busy schedule to be with them. He took them up in his arms, put his hands upon them, and blessed them. Jesus spent time in the home of his friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. On one such occasion, he listened patiently to the complaints of an anxious and perhaps weary Martha, who felt she was carrying more than her fair share of the burden of hosting guests. Jesus responded with kindness, understanding, and love. Later, when Lazarus became sick, Mary and Martha sent for Jesus. When Mary heard that Jesus was approaching, she ran to meet him, fell down at his feet, and said, If thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. When Jesus saw her weeping, the scriptures tell us that he groaned in the spirit and was troubled, and that he wept. He showed great compassion in mourning with and comforting those around him. Near the end of his mortal ministry, Jesus said, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you. While Jesus sat at the well or visited with friends in their homes, the streets of Jerusalem were filled with the homeless, the hungry, the crippled, the blind, and those with leprosy. But there was nothing negligible about his services. There is nothing negligible about the simple acts of kindness and assistance that you and I offer to those around us on a daily basis. Here at BYU, the one within our reach might be the roommate who has had a difficult day and needs someone to listen, or the professor who is having an off-day teaching and needs a little patience and understanding, or the guy in the lane next to us who needs us to give him a break by slowing down to let him over so he doesn't miss his turn ahead. We can find the one within our reach needing our assistance every day in our homes, in our communities, and in our classrooms right here on campus. It may only be a drop, but it does make a difference in the lives of those around us. President David O. McKay was fond of the 19th century quote, Life is made up not of great sacrifices or duties, but of little things in which smiles and kindness and small obligations given habitually are what win and preserve the heart and secure comfort. End quote. Mother Teresa said, It is never too small. We are so small we look at things in a small way. But God, being almighty, sees everything great. Therefore, even if you write a letter for a blind man, or you just go and sit and listen, or you take the mail for him, or you visit somebody, or bring a flower to somebody, small things, or wash clothes for somebody, or clean the house, very humble work, that is where you and I must be. For there are many people who can do big things, but there are very few people who will do the small things. End quote. We read in the Book of Mormon that by small and simple things are great things brought to pass. This is illustrated beautifully in the birth of Christ. The Savior of the world was born in a simple stable in an obscure village to a woman of no great standing in the world. Out of these simple, small circumstances proceeded the Lord's great work of salvation. One of the most recognizable symbols of the Christmas season is the nativity with a small babe lying in straw surrounded by animals. It's a reminder to us all that out of small things proceed of that which is great. When celebrating the birth of Christ, we surround ourselves with symbols to remind us of what life is really all about, why we're here, and what we're supposed to be doing with our lives. 
There are two very similar fictional stories that have become a part of the Christmas tradition in the United States. One is Frank Capra's film, It's a Wonderful Life. The other is Charles Dickens' novella, A Christmas Carol, which has been adapted for film and theater. I believe the broad appeal of these simple stories lies in their ability to remind us of things that we so easily forget but really want to remember. They help us rediscover the small things that get misplaced in the clutter around us. I know it's a little off-season, but I hope you indulge me in referring to these stories to remind us of some things here today. The main characters in these two stories, George Bailey and Ebenezer Scrooge, live their lives in relative obscurity, interacting on a daily basis with the people in their neighborhoods and communities, going about the mundane task of life. Both are businessmen in the profession of lending money, a trade that brings them into daily contact with individuals needing assistance. Like his father before him, George Bailey runs his business with his head rather than his heart. He puts people before profits. His purpose in running a building alone is to help people get out of the slums. Kindness and respect characterize his daily interactions with those around him. On the other hand, Ebenezer Scrooge is described by Dickens as a squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner. He conducts business with his head rather than his heart, a head that Dickens says is as hard and sharp as flint. Prophets come before people. Despising the poor, Scrooge is perfectly content to keep them in the slums. Despite their differences, these two characters are very much alike. Both have forgotten the significance of their simple, daily interactions with others. The powerful, cumulative effect of daily living is lost on them. They don't get it. Not until there is Christmas Eve intervention to remind them of things they probably already know in their hearts but have forgotten in their heads. George feels like a failure because he did not pursue his dreams of becoming an architect and world traveler. He has lived out his life in the same small town where he was born, doing the same small things day in and day out. He feels that he has made no difference in the world. Looking back on his life, he can find no meaning or purpose to it. He contemplates ending his life. George's life, however, is saved by an angel named Clarence, who has come as an answer to the prayers of George's family and to earn his wings. Clarence's job is to show George the impact of those small things he did day in and day out. Clarence sets out to prove to George that he really has had a wonderful life by giving him a vision of what life would have been like for others had George never been born. Visiting that same small town as a stranger who has never lived among them, George finds people without hope living in the slums. He finds unhappiness and despair. He hasn't been there to offer a hand up, and no one else has bothered. George realizes that his little deeds of goodness, his habits of selfless service, his small drops, have brought a better life to those around him and beyond. He's astonished at the reach of his small gestures. George had made a difference in the world without ever having left his hometown. Ebenezer Scrooge also had Christmas Eve visitors. The first is the ghost of Jacob Marley, Ebenezer's former business partner. He appears captive, bound, and double-ironed, with a long chain wound about him made of cash boxes, keys, padlocks, ledgers, deeds, and heavy purses wrought in steel. The ghost explains to Ebenezer that he wears the chain that he forged in life, having made it link by link and yard by yard through the choices he made, being eternally linked to that which he valued most in life. 
He explains that he is now required to walk the earth and witness what he could not now share, but might have shared on earth, and turn to happiness. Shocked, Ebenezer exclaims, But you are always a good man of business, Jacob. The remorseful ghost says, Business? Mankind was my business. The common welfare was my business. Charity, mercy, forbearance, and benevolence were all my business. The dealings of my trade were but a drop of water in the ocean of my business. And Ebenezer doesn't get it. He does not comprehend how the big things count so little, nor how the small things matter so much. He cannot get that flint head of his around it. In the course of that long night, he is visited by the spirits of Christmas past, present, and future. They come to show Scrooge that his cold-hearted, tight-fisted ways, his drops, have brought misery and unhappiness to those around him. His single-minded focus on his business has gradually resulted in his turning his back on his family and friends and in rejecting the needs of those in his community. Both Ebenezer and George have Christmas epiphanies, bringing them back to that simple stable in an obscure village. They come to realize that by very small means the Lord doth confound the wise and bringeth about the salvation of many souls. They remember, as we do through their stories, that the essence of our lives is the small, seemingly insignificant, daily interactions we have with others. We are busy people here at BYU. There are appointments to be kept, projects to be finished, papers to be written, assignments to be graded, and any number of things to be organized on any given day. In the rush of our daily lives, we, like Marley and Scrooge, can easily get our priorities mixed up and forget the small things that are most important in our lives. The one we need to assist could be sitting right next to us, but we do not see that person. Perhaps the person needing our individual attention has worked in the same office with us for years, and yet that person is invisible to us. If we become too preoccupied with the distractions that crowd around us, we may not feel the prompting when our Heavenly Father has an assignment for us. One of my responsibilities at the library is to meet one-on-one with students to assist them with their research. I consider it the best part of my job. I also sometimes have to write reports and attend to mundane office duties. On one occasion, I was feeling the pressure of an upcoming deadline. It had been a busy week, and I wasn't sure how I was going to get everything done. On my calendar, I had designated a couple of hours to get a task done. I told the student employees at our desk not to send any students needing research assistance to me that morning. I then went into my office and closed my door. A short while later, there was a knock at the door. I was irritated at the interruption. I went to the door and opened it. The student standing there explained that he really needed to meet with me as soon as possible, and he wondered if now would be a good time. Looking at my face, his smile dropped. Whatever I was radiating that morning, it wasn't friendly. Before I could answer him, he said, I see you're busy. I'll come back at another time. As he started to walk away, I had a prompting, a chastisement, really. I had made a bad choice. I had gotten my priorities mixed up. Like Marley and Scrooge, I had forgotten for a moment that mankind was my business. I told him to stay, that I would really like to meet with him now. As we talked in my office, he explained that he had transferred to BYU from a small college. The coursework here was more difficult than he had anticipated. He was feeling discouraged and doubting his abilities. He had two papers due, and he hadn't had much experience writing research papers. 
He found the library to be a complicated, large, and I'm sure thinks to me, unfriendly place. I had nothing better to do at that moment other than to orient a new student to library research and to offer a little encouragement. He returned to me several times for help after that. If I had let him walk away because I was too busy for him, I am sure he would not have returned. That prompting told me that. I believe that our Heavenly Father has small daily tasks that He would like us to do right here at BYU to make a difference. He would like to make us instruments in His hands in helping to fulfill His work. President Spencer W. Kimball said, God does notice us, and He watches over us, but it is usually through another person that He meets our needs. Therefore, it is vital that we serve each other in the kingdom. So often our acts of service consist of simple encouragement or of giving mundane help with mundane tasks. But what glorious consequences can flow from mundane acts and from small but deliberate deeds? Knowing there are angels among us attending to our needs and that no sparrow falls without the Father's notice gives us courage and faith to let go of our own troubles long enough to reach out and help others with theirs. It's a system of give and take that works best when all focus more on the giving and less on the taking. Along the way, our Heavenly Father sends us gentle reminders of the small things that are of the greatest worth. I first arrived on this campus as a freshman nearly 30 years ago. I had only been a member of the Church for four months. I was the only member of my family. I was over 2,000 miles from my home in Virginia and knew no one here in Utah. It was a lot to get used to all at once. At times, I felt like I had landed in a foreign country. I was overwhelmed with all there was to learn and do. I didn't know who my roommate would be in the dorms that first year, but I assumed it would be a lifelong member of the Church who could explain to me how things worked around here. The Lord, as He often does, had something else in mind. That first roommate wasn't a member of the Church. In fact, he wasn't from a Christian tradition. He was from Saudi Arabia, and he didn't speak English. He had come to participate in BYU's English as a Second Language program. I may have felt like I was in a foreign land, but he actually was. My challenges seemed trivial. His appeared to be overwhelming. He looked to me to tell him how things worked around here, and I hope he has forgiven me for not always getting it right. President Gordon B. Hinckley has told of his experience of feeling homesick and discouraged while serving a mission in England. He wrote home about it. His father's simple reply was, Forget yourself and go to work. I think that's the message my Heavenly Father was trying to send me that first year. Years ago, President Hinckley visited this campus and gave that very message to the students. He said, If the pressures of school are too heavy, if you complain about your housing and the food you eat, I can suggest a cure for your problems. Lay your books aside for a few hours, leave your room, and go visit someone who is old and lonely. There are many such right here in this valley. Or visit those who are sick and discouraged. There are hundreds of that kind here, including not a few on this campus, who need the kind of encouragement you could give." I was not left without assistance and encouragement that first year. In fact, I don't have time today to tell you of all the helpers sent my way. But I do want to mention one. Before I left home, my grandmother sat me down to determine if I was really serious about going to BYU. When, to her disappointment, she found out that I was, she said, You might as well know, then, that your grandfather has a cousin who joined the Latter-day Saints some thirty years ago. She explained the complicated family connection, but it went over my head. 
She explained that in the course of those 30 years, they had only seen this cousin and his wife at a few reunions, and that it was her understanding that he now lived in New Mexico. She said that at one of the reunions, she had heard that this cousin had a son who worked at BYU. She didn't know the son's name, but she provided me with the cousin's name. I tucked this information away in my mind, thinking that perhaps I would look this person up when I came to BYU. That first semester, I had registered for my general electives, including Biology 100. In my registration materials, the instructor of that biology class was simply listed as staff. On the first day of class, the instructor introduced himself as Larry St. Clair. I immediately recognized the name as the last name of that cousin. The thought, of course, occurred to me that I should ask him if he was the son of this cousin. However, as the class progressed that day, I started to talk myself out of the idea, thinking that there could be any number of people on campus with that last name and wondering how I would approach the subject, since I wasn't exactly sure how we were related. The feeling that I should introduce myself persisted to the point that I felt pushed forward. At the end of class, I hung back, waiting for a portion of the class who had surrounded the professor wanting to add his class. If you've ever been in a Biology 100 class, you know this was a hundred or so people. My turn finally came, and I introduced myself, asking him if he was the son of Jack St. Clair. When he confirmed this, I introduced myself as his cousin. He asked me a few questions. At this point, he could have said, Nice to meet you, tell the folks hello, and left it at that. But he invited me to dinner that week so I could meet his wife Rita and their children. I went to dinner and met the St. Clair family. At that point, Larry had certainly fulfilled any family obligation he might have had, and again he could have left it at that with a clear conscience. However, he was in tune enough to recognize the one within his reach who needed his help. He somehow realized that I was a little homesick, a lot overwhelmed, with no family support in the Church. The Sinclairs invited me to dinner again and again and again. They invited me over for holidays. They invited me to go to activities with them. A few months after that initial meeting, Larry Sinclair bestowed the Melchizedek Priesthood and ordained me to the office of an elder. A year later, Larry and Rita accompanied me to the Salt Lake Temple for my first visit to the temple. A couple months after that, Larry drove me to the Missionary Training Center to see me off on my mission. Jump forward 20 years. I was 2,000 miles from my home, this time in the opposite direction, on the East Coast at a conference away from my family and home in Utah. I received a phone call from my distressed wife. I could hear our children crying in the background. Our family had suffered a heartbreaking loss. I felt helpless. I couldn't get home immediately. After we ended our phone call, my wife loaded the children into our van and drove to Larry and Rita St. Clair's house. The St. Clairs found themselves with a living room full of heartbroken people. Larry took each, one by one, and placed his hands on them and gave them blessings of comfort. When we are willing to accept assignments from the Lord, they may only take a moment, but they might also take a month or a year or a lifetime. The important thing is that we are in tune enough to see the one within our reach who needs our help and that we have enough faith to accept the assignment. It won't be convenient, and I hope nothing I have said here today has given the impression that I believe small and simple means easy, because it doesn't. But I believe these small and simple things will become our most valued university experiences. When Mawi Askadam, an Ethiopian native who had once lived in a Sudanese refugee camp, left for Harvard University, his mother said to him, 
Always remember where you came from. Once he arrived at Harvard, he got caught up in the rush of everyday university life, which for him involved clubs, sports, a lot of classes, and a part-time job. He said remembering where he came from became far less important than knowing where he was supposed to be every half hour of the day. During his sophomore year, he was working as a delivery man for the Harvard Student Agency. While waiting for a package in the office, he watched as an elderly and feeble woman walked in. She asked if there was someone there who could type a short letter for her. Such a simple, easy thing to do, Ma we recall later. The receptionist explained that they had no typing services there and sent her away. Looking a little confused, the woman started to turn away, but another worker in the office called her over and gently set her down and then typed the letter for her. Maui said, Never has a Harvard student seemed so great to me as in that moment. In that moment, Maui began to reflect on what his mother might have meant when she advised him to always remember where he came from. He had been the recipient of many such kindnesses in his long journey from a refugee camp to Harvard University. Many angels had helped him along the way, and he had noticed that most angels don't look like angels, so it shouldn't have surprised him as much as perhaps it did to find one looking like an ordinary college student there at Harvard. Thinking back on those angels and their kindnesses, he realized that each had taught him something important about life and inspired him to reach out to those around him. In their small ways, they had made a difference in his life. Maui graduated with top honors, giving the commencement address at his graduation in 1999. Reflecting on what he had learned at Harvard, he said, many facts and formulas, many new ways of thinking, a fresh understanding of the world, end quote. But in his commencement speech, he highlighted that seemingly insignificant act of kindness he witnessed that day in the student agency as a turning point in his education as he began to reflect on what is most important in life. He said, While Harvard University taught me well, my true education has come from less likely sources. End quote. I pray we will always remember where we came from and that we will follow Christ in reaching out to those around us. Christ-like love transforms our simple, everyday living into something extraordinary. It's the love of Christ that makes the difference. We don't need to leave BYU to make a difference in the world. There are people within our reach here who need us. There are assignments waiting for us here. We just need to accept them. In the words of David O. McKay, there is no one great thing that you can do to obtain eternal life. And it seems to me that the great lesson to be learned in the world today is to apply in the little acts and duties of life the glorious principles of the gospel. Let us not think that because some things seem small and trivial that they are unimportant. Life, after all, is made up of little things. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for a half hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Serving with Love. J. Michael Hunter gave his devotional address entitled Small Things. Speeches on Finding Center are often edited for broadcast. Find links to the full talks and access the rest of our Finding Center episodes on the free BYU Radio app, available wherever you get your apps. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.